You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I am joined by Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer. Hi. Hey, you guys. We're the hosts. Welcome home, Evan. Hey, thanks. How was Brazil? Evan looking very tan. Yeah. It was great. They have sunshine down there. I don't know if you've heard. Evan came back with like a Rasta hat on. <laughs> it's false. He, <laughs> he, false. Also, he also loves conferencing now. Yeah. The total 180. <laughs> yeah, 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 real turnaround. Actually, I, I, spoke at, I spoke at a panel this week. And I got off the stage, and people were like, "Come around, talking to me." I looked down; my fly was down. <laughs> whole whole discussion, my fly was down. <laughs> Thanks, Indie Media Camp. Uh, who'd you talk to this week? Uh, this week, I talked to Alec Wilkinson from The New Yorker. He has, in fact, been at The New Yorker for a very long time. Uh, he's been through uh, like three regimes at The New Yorker, maybe four. Just a really interesting guy. I've loved his work for a long time, and I uh, finally got him. Got him in. Did you talk to him about shorthand? I forgot to talk to him about shorthand. He writes and sh- he he takes notes in shorthand, uh, which is something we had talked to him about before. And then I totally forgot to bring it up with him. It's really amazing watching that shorthand in uh, real time. It's crazy. It's like a Sanskrit. If you're trying to get your shorthand out to the world, you're going to want to do it in a tiny letter. It's a uh, simple newsletter service from the good people at Mailchimp. There's lots of good ones already about a wide variety of topics. Uh, maybe you have a topic that you could get deep on, but with a shorthand. But for now, here's Evan with Alec Wilkinson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you coming for on. Me. Yeah. I've just been reading your stuff for such a long time and digging back through a lot of it. You could win that drinking game, you know, where they say, you know, who who reads Alec Wilkinson? And then <laughs> you're the only one, so you, you know. They all have to drink. No, there were pieces that I love, New Yorker pieces, that I I didn't remember were yours. Oh, that happens a lot. Yeah. I think people only remember the names of the, the critics yeah. because they give them their opinions. <laughs> but all the time people say to me, you write for the New Yorker? Really? Um, I, I, I don't recognize your name. What do you write about? Oh, yeah, I read that piece. Yeah. What do you write about? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or probably they remember the names of the critics and the people who have a beat. Yeah, but anyway, that happens all the time. Yeah, I also I try to be a little unobtrusive, maybe, and that doesn't help for necessarily. You mean perhaps. in the writing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't know if it's a problem other people have. Do you have people who remember your stories, but not that you wrote them? Uh, no, people don't remember my stories. <laughs> The worst one for me was when, when I was with somebody who who was fairly knowledgeable about music, and somehow somebody mentioned the profile I'd written to Pete Seeger. Oh yeah, and, and I said to him, you know, well, I, I wrote that. He said, "Huh, I remember the profile. I just don't remember you wrote it." <laughs> so, even though you just said that you wrote it, <laughs> yeah, it was just a weird. So one thing I was getting at with sort of like that that idea of not knowing that you wrote pieces is that. The types of pieces you write are the subject matter is incredibly eclectic. I mean, there's you know we've had a lot of generalists yeah, right. on the podcast and they talk about that, but yours may be the widest of anybody that I've interviewed. But it's also because of probably it's so long. I mean, it's almost thirty five years. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot. It's piled up. But it, I wonder if it has something with uh, to do with sort of how you got into it in the in the first place. And I read a little about it, and it's pretty fascinating how you first sort of started out as a writer because I, I know you were a police officer first well that was you... an adventure i yeah. mean if, i never took it seriously i never it was never an ambition yeah 
uh, I have three older brothers, and they comprise um, a family. I suppose I was an accident or something like that. My next oldest brother is uh, eight years older than I am. And you're the youngest. And I'm the youngest. So it's almost as if they're two separate families. So I grew up always feeling that whatever was truly interesting was just beyond my possession and over the horizon, as it were, because it belonged to my brothers who were having older experiences. Huh. You know, by the time I'm eight, my next youngest brother is 16. So there are he's already looking at Playboy and things like that. And I don't <laughs> even know what it means. <laughs> So uh, I had this kind of um, sense of mystery, I realize now, about what the masculine world was. I was always excluded by my brothers and by my father because for practical reasons, essentially. I mean, they they were, um, we grew up in what was then a reasonably rural part of Westchester County, and, and my parents had horses and a barn, although my father worked in New York City. But I mean, your father worked in magazines, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so um, but it meant that every single weekend in any kind of fair weather, there was work to be done. It was a huge barn to be cleared out. There were fields to be mowed. There were things to do. So the three of them went off with my father and did them, and I was too too small uh-huh. to do them. Uh, you know, you can't if you're doing any kind of work like that. You can't distract yourself with keeping, making sure the five-year-old is not, you know, putting his hand in the lawnmower or something. So I had this great sense of mystery about it. And I had graduated. I took a leave of absence from college to um, play music. So I graduated from college in the middle of the year, in, in, in December. Mm-hmm. And my parents in those days used to spend the winters in Spain, which sounds very glamorous, mm. but they would really actually find it was possible to do on very little money. Mm-hmm. They, they would find a house in the back of the Christian Science Monitor and, and uh, you know, rent it for, from someone who lived in England or something like that. And, and it, was, it was never glamorous, but it was nice. So their house was empty on Cape Cod in Wellfleet, and um, I went to, to stay there. And on the town bulletin board one day in the middle of the winter was an advertisement for a policeman. And I just thought that could be the strangest adventure I've ever had. But I also had this somewhat romantic idea that I was going to, the way people sometimes used to go off to join the army or something in the 40s or the the 50s, that I was going to add myself to this collection of people who looked to me to be men of authority. There were, of course, 24 years old, probably, or 28 years old. Mm -hmm. The oldest of them was maybe 30. But they looked glamorous to me in a certain way. And I just thought, well, after I realized now I was was simply compensating unconsciously for what I didn't get (laughs) from my family, I thought, well, let me join this fraternity and I will see how it turns out. And meanwhile, I'll have this adventure. Were you thinking... I might write about this because you wrote a book about it. No. So at what point... I was really thinking... Rather cynically, that afterward I go to law school. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. So then, uh, I know you've cataloged this in a couple of different places in terms of how you got into writing. But yes. So how, when did the impulse hit you? I began having adventures. Very strange things were happening to me because I was going into people's houses at midnight when the you know the mother and father are just about throwing glasses at each other, and uh, you know the children called and said, you know, my mommy and daddy are fighting, and. You know, daddy's got a gun in the, you know, in the, in the closet, or, mm-hmm. you know, or mommy's got a knife in her hand, or I'd go to the scene of suicides, or I'd be picking up drunks at 2.30 in the morning, staggering home and, you know, from the bars, and I'd drive them home. I, I was just having for, for someone such as me who'd had perhaps a rather sheltered kind of life, I was having exciting things going on. So I um, would start to tell people, you know, the things were going on. I, I all a number of my friends had moved to New York City, so so I'd come sometimes on the weekends to New York and try to hang out with them. Although it was sort of difficult because they're going to jobs and, yeah. and you know, and I was footloose. But people would begin to say, well, you you know, you should write about that. And I would think, well, I'm a musician. I'm not a writer. I, you still eyed a music career as the kind of ultimate. Yeah. I mean, that was really, but you know, in those days there, it was, it's much easier these days to have a music career in a certain way in that, in those days, I'm talking about the, the middle seventies, you know, there were the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. And you had to be signed by a huge record label. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't go into a garage and record your band and, um, you know, use Pro Tools to make a serviceable CD that you then right, sold right. for $5 at your gigs. Right. I got a couple of good good jobs that gave me, you know, modest little tours through New England. But it didn't, I didn't see any way to make it happen. How was I going to 
get into the offices of Warner Brothers in New York and say, would you listen to my tape or yeah, something? Right. Just, it just didn't, didn't seem possible. So people started telling you, you should, you should write down these these stories yeah, of being a policeman. Would, they would say you should, you know, these are these this you should do that and and I would say no I can't and originally one of my brothers who's a writer was going to help me and then he stopped. I eventually got around to trying to do do it myself and it was about 5 months into it when I really realized well this is my ambition I'm going going to do this. I'm going to write a book about being a policeman and so I had to stay for a year to make it given a natural context. You know, you've written about uh, William Maxwell and your relationship with him. And there's a great line in one of the pieces uh, when you first started writing and you say the book that stuck in your head was Look Home or an Angel and there was a line <laughs> that stuck in your head and you thought if that's... The if, night was a cool bowl of lilac darkness. Yes, that's it. <laughs> but if that was writing, you couldn't uh, you couldn't be a writer. Yeah, who could do that? <laughs> but what? how did you get from thinking, I can't be a writer like that, to actually sitting down and writing the book? I read Across the River and Into the Trees. Hmm. without realizing that it was Hemingway's worst novel. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, I could do that. <laughs> Across the River and Into the Trees is not a distinguished novel. And it's not full of the... It's not like the Hemingway short stories. It's not complicated in those ways. It's just sort of dreadful. But it was inspiring to me because the plain spokenness of it made sense to me as mm-hmm. a means of pursuing a story. I, but I, but the night was a cool bowl of lilac darkness. I mean, that's... It just, I, just, I just never had a thought like that in my life. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there was a wonderful review of... Uh, not review, an interview on 60 Minutes with Bob Dylan maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago. The interviewer asked him, you know, how did you write the, you know, why don't you write songs like you used to? And he started quoting some of the lyrics, and I can't think of, you know, they're so strange, but, you know, well, the night comes down like a buzz. He said, you try to write that stuff. <laughs> you know, and he was just, just sort of saying it was, it was part of a different, you know, he was a different person then. Yeah, like that stuff doesn't come into my head. Yeah, the, the night was a cool bowl of lilac darkness had never entered my consciousness. I didn't even really know what to make of it. I yeah. wasn't even sure, is that good writing or not good writing? What the hell is that? In writing about this friendship that you had, yeah. I feel like there's a lot in there about about write, the writing process itself uh, yeah. in terms of... I was like an apprentice. Yeah. So how did that, how did that come about? Did you just say, uh, will you read this book? Well, he was Maxwell um, in this house that I was describing that had the barns and the horses and whatnot was up the hill from the Maxwell's house. Mm-hmm. And Maxwell and my father used to ride the train together to New York. And Maxwell was the fiction editor. And Maxwell was the, the fiction editor of the New Yorker. He wasn't the, he, but, oh, um, they were very careful never to stipulate that there was a the. Yeah, interesting. Um, although th- there were several important fiction editors, but he was certainly as important as any of them. So he, my father had said to him, um, you know, Alex writing a book, would you read it? Because I wasn't a literary person, I didn't know who Maxwell was. I thought he was my father's friend. <laughs> He's just and the I was guy a, up the hill. I was aware that on the bookshelves were books that had his name on the spine, but I hadn't read them. Mm-hmm. They'd never come down from the bookshelf, my, so apparently my parents weren't reading them either. Although, of course, they have when they came out. But I just mean, I didn't know the extraordinary thing that was happening to me at the time, which was probably fortunate because it would have seized me up. Yeah, um, yeah. It, you know, would be, it seemed like an incredible amount of pressure to be writing for this person yeah. who's edited Cheever, Salinger, Cheever, Cheever and Nabokov, yeah. Updike, Welty. So I was protected, again, by my innocence. And, and um, for better or worse, I'm the only writer that he took out of the chorus, as it were, I wasn't even good enough to be in the chorus, probably. But, um, you know, who made made it to some version of the stage by having been brought all the way through the stages of writing by over the course of, you know, in the end, probably 20 years yeah. of working together. And did the, did the first book, did that lead to writing for The New Yorker, or did you already start along the way? I finished the book, and then I began just sending it out by myself. And it always came back, sometimes with a rather, with a curt dismissal and sometimes, you know, one one man sent a nice letter and asked to see it and he'd heard about it and I sent it to him and he kept it for eight months before. <laughs> and, you know, you, I, my understanding was that the etiquette required that you only deal with one person at a time. Yeah, so right. I didn't, when it came back after eight months, that was pretty discouraging. So it got rejected after eight months. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. What was he doing all that time? He was just a big shot guy, and he was—he'd um, read there was a piece about me in the 
Wellfleet paper. Uh-huh. He'd read that and thought, okay, well, let me just take a weird flyer on this thing. And he read it, and it wasn't very good. It, um, so I'm not surprised he turned it down. After a, a while of doing this, maybe a year and a half or something like that, I moved to New York City. I had met on Cape Cod a writer not often talked about these days, but a, but a good one, and one I'm deeply fond of, a man named George W.S. Trow. And um, he had rented a house belonging to a friend of mine, and my friend said, oh, you should, you know, you should go meet my tenant. He's a writer. So I met George, and we really got along. And I thought, well, George writes mainly for talk of the town. Mm-hmm. That's what I'll do, because it was a way of imagining being a writer. And they and were I unbylined would, at that time. They were there. It had no byline, but it was sort of plain. I, you know, he would sometimes, he rented this house over the course of a summer, and he went to... Um, New York once or twice, and then there would be a talk story in there. You know, it was also, I could see an actual, I know this man, he disappeared for this amount of time, he came back, and then in my New Yorker was this story, and I know he did it. It just had a kind of, I wouldn't say symmetrical exactly, but it it was a path that I thought I could walk. So I moved to New York with utterly no awareness whatsoever that anybody else might have aspired to work in the New Yorker. (laughs) It's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. So I began going around the city and writing Talk of the Town stories and then um, doing what every other young hopeful writer in those days was doing. You either put them in the mail or you just simply went to 25 West 43rd Street and tapped on the receptionist glass and you slipped your story under the glass and said, this is for Mr. Sean. And, and uh, you know, there was this, this sort of self-deluded thought of, well, he's, Mr. Sean's going to want to see this right away. You know, I, I should put it in the mail. I'll just <laughs> take it to him. <laughs> so And then what happened is, astonishingly, um, they bought a piece. And then they bought another piece. And at that point, I had managed through my friend George Trow to get an agent, a woman named Elaine Markson. And she sent my book to a, an editor at Random House called Joe Fox, who was probably most famously Truman Capote's editor for In Cold Blood and a lot of other th- things. He was a, you know, a very um, highly regarded editor. She, you know, she was able now to say, um, you know, this is a young writer for The New Yorker. And The New Yorker had a cachet in those days that um, regrettably it no longer has. There are too many competing things. Yeah. But in those days, you stopped conversation in a room. That would make a book editor say, Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it was no, it, the, all the doors just opened for me then. That was uh, all that was required. But it was if, only really a few pieces that you'd Yeah, it was just written. two talk stories. Uh-huh. You know? And, it's really uh, leveraging that. that uh, oh, yes. Way. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't think of that. That's the perfect word. I leveraged that into, <laughs> rather pretentiously leveraged that into what turned out to be a book contract. I mean, basically, he read the book and he said, you know, I'm not going to give him a contract, but if he's willing to rewrite it with these things in mind... I'll work on it. So I did. And um, somehow, once again, I, I ne- naively just assumed that he was going to buy it. It took me about five months to rewrite it, and um, I gave it back to him, and he did buy it for, I think it was $5,000. What year was this? Uh, 1981, probably. Uh-huh. Did you feel like you'd hit the jackpot at oh, that point? Oh, man, are you kidding me? I felt like, you know, it was it was stunning. The two, you know, the two things, selling my first book and getting, having William Sean call me and say, you know, ask me if I wanted to come to work at The New Yorker was the, still, I don't know that I've ever achieved a kind of exotic elation otherwise. I yeah. mean, there was just no, nothing quite compared for it. I don't know what your experience of, of moving to New York was, but for most of us who move here, you're not sure you can stay. Yeah. So those things were enormous. They meant they were confirmation that um, I had a future. Mm-hmm. And was there a second level once you, you get that call and you come in to say, OK, now I have this job. I'm a writer for The New Yorker. Did you feel like you knew what to do at that point? I mean, oh, yeah, I did. And I just completely dropped the ball. <laughs> I mean, I just fumbled. I went like for a year practically without being able to sell a piece to them. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah. But, you know, in those days, um, you know, that was part of the pattern. Almost everybody had been through some experience, not Updike, but so it wasn't uncommon. Uh-huh. But I got, I'm, I'm sorry to say it doesn't reflect well on me, but I think I got arrogant and I just thought, oh, I'm a writer for The New Yorker now. So what I write will be used by The New Yorker. It took about like eight months. And then I seemed to be able to start to get some sense of, I once asked William Maxwell why he had bothered you know, why had he taken so much time to, with me? And he said, well, 
you were a quick learner. And I don't know if you've taught writing or... I have not, no. Yeah, but you appreciate it when people learn quickly because it means you tell them something, they got it, you tell them another thing. Or they, so I, at least I have always found that a congenial trait yeah. in somebody. And the real problem for me was that it was not... It took me about um, 25 years to get any comfort whatsoever in writing in that short form. A talk story is a very specific... In those days, it could be even up to 1,800 words. It's much longer than now. Yeah, now yeah. they're 800 on the nose. Also, I was, you know, arriving at the tail end of what had been undoubtedly the greatest period in the history of talk writing at The New Yorker. It, it, it was, you know, week in and week out, Ian Frazier, Jamaica Kincaid, Mark Singer, George Tro. Oh. You know, and I'd written a book. I had no idea of how to compress or how to be succinct or how to... I had really had to learn that, and it wasn't a natural form. Oh, and, you know, I was a miler, not a sprinter. I mean, you've written 10 books and all these pieces on all these topics. And those, looking back at those early pieces, first of all, it wasn't that long after you started that it seemed like, you know, you were going and doing stories that are 10,000 words or more. I mean, this was an era where yeah. you had two-part stories that were appear to be most of the feature well of The New Yorker or... Well, um, again, I, got, I did one of those pieces. Um, my career beginning that was more a result again of failure than anything else what really happened is there was a guy named uh, Bill McKibben who Sean had hired to come write for Talk of the Town and McKibben arrived and he was a version of a newspaper journalist he he sort of worked on the Harvard Crimson mm -hmm. and he was very fast at writing very smart, very efficient. And he just sort of took over Talk of the Town. And, and um, there had been a sort of a, a, a – among people who wrote it for The New Yorker, there was a kind of historic talk issue once where George Stroh wrote everything, the comment and all the talk <laughs> stories. But you wouldn't know it because there were no right. bylines. But everybody knew George did the whole thing. He'd gone to Sean and say, could I do the whole thing? Well, that became not uncommon for McKibben. He was so prolific – that he'd write two or three talk stories a week and sometimes show them. So it, it sort of began, I started looking, I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to, I'd been at the New Yorker maybe um, three years by the time he arrived or something. And I just thought, this is, this is just never going to happen. I mean, I write a story and it maybe takes three issues or something to get in. McKibben's doing three an issue or something. I just thought, <laughs> can't possibly happen. So I thought what I need to do to get out of this is come up with an idea for a long piece. Hmm. Then I got it approved, and then I realized, oh, I've never done this. So I wrote to John McPhee, and I asked, could I um, kind of ask him how you do these things? And he is the most generous of writers. And he just said, he wrote back and said, sure, I'm closing a piece next week. Um, why don't we go have lunch? I'll be in the office, because he lives in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh -huh. And he took me out and he told me, you know, really, he laid out a, a blueprint for me about how to do this kind of stuff that never really failed me. It was just sort of a... What are some of the elements? Well, he, he said, you know, if you're, you're going to do a profile, you have to go three places with the person. And I thought, oh, okay, that makes sense. Because, you know, when you're writing profiles, the most difficult thing, so few people can write them these days. But the most complicated thing, and you may have found this in your own work, is how to give the sense of time's passing. Because you you have a static subject, which is a figure, a, a, you know, a person's character and nature and work that you're describing. But but that's not going to contribute any suspense to your narrative. Right. You're trying to capture some sort of scope. You have to figure but, out some way to just make the reader feel, okay, and then, you know, as Ian Forster says, and then, uh -huh. and then. And one of the ways to do it is you move, you know, white space. The next time I saw him, we, white space... It had been years since so-and-so had been too, and we went, you know, whatever it was. Or, um, it gives you a setting and a context. Yeah. One of the things that I was very uncertain about was, do you stand there with a notebook, or do you listen to people? And, to, you know, what if, will people mistrust you if you're standing there with a notebook? And, the, and he said, you know, I've always just said to people, I'm a reporter, and I stand there with my notebook and I take notes and people want to tell you things. And, you know, I just it, it, I, I went, you know, through my whole career, as you as you know, from showing up. I'm a reporter. I'm writing down what you're <laughs> saying. Could I ask you? You know, and you discover that people want to help you. Unfortunately, now we live in a time 
where the media has become so rapacious and so unpleasant and so splintered and that it's much more difficult now to, you know, you show up and say you're a reporter and people go, you know, think you're a scumbag yeah, or something right. like that. And it, it's very different. But anyway, he, you know, things like that he told me that were just, they were great. It was gracious. You know, I'd gone to George Trow once and said, you know, can I go with you to do a story and see how you do it? He said, obscenity you, pal. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can curse on this podcast. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so this was, I was sort of stunned at his generosity and, and always have been. He's, in my whole experience, I'm, not that I'm close to him, but I've never encountered a writer you know, more willing and generous. I said, well, it's probably not accidental that he's been a teacher a lot. And that, and that, I don't want to spend too much time on the, on the very early, those very early pieces, but that, that moonshine uh, piece, first of all, that character, I mean, he's extraordinary character, but also the sort of, I, I don't know if it's in the writing or in the reporting, the sort of density of time that you seem to spend with him yeah. also seems like, of that era and more difficult to do today. Like, there's a part that I yeah. was underlining that piece where you just you just offhandedly say, uh, while he was doing something, I mowed his lawn. <laughs> mow his lawn. <laughs> I put that in the book. Uh, it's, yeah, oh, it's, it's like uh, he's yeah, like one day uh, I just mowed the lawn yeah, for him. I can see he was sort of busy, and <laughs> you know, I want, I was hoping we'd go because what we would do the whole piece was reported basically riding around in his pickup truck, but I could see we weren't going to you know there was going not going to be any walk in the swamp or or ride in the pickup truck until the lawn got mowed. Right. So I did do that. Oh, that's funny. You went hunting with him. You went, I mean, yeah. obviously you went out looking for moonshine yeah, yeah. stills. That's yeah, what, that yeah. was his thing. I was uh, a kid, you know, I was 28 or nine or something like that. And I really um, admired him and his company was a great pleasure. And when I wrote about the sugarcane cutters, it was borne in on me at a certain point that the reason that I was being tolerated in the town that I kept going to was that they were accustomed to journalists who would arrive in town, get a tour of the sugar mill, interview the president of the company, and take and and view the PR exhibit in the, mm -hmm. in the Florida Sugarcane League, and go home and write a story. And the fact that I was there month after month and and all of that only indicated to them that I was a little bit of a moron. <laughs> And not that I might be doing something serious, but just that, you know, this guy's pathetic. And, and Garland Bunting, who was the moonshine guy, I think just I think he wondered how come I'm coming back. But there was a kind of, um, you know, my hero was Joseph Mitchell. And there was this kind of sense that that was how you did reporting. There was nothing conniving about it or cunning or you just simply kept returning and kept returning. And that was another great thing that McPhee said. I said, well, how do you know when you're done? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, when I ask a question and I hear an answer I've heard before, I realize, okay, I'm probably, I'm done now. Um, well, what's it like to be, you've been inside this institution or you, you work as a staff writer and then you, you do a piece and then oftentimes you'll go write a book? The books pretty much were the pieces. Yeah, I, ne I never actually, I never sold a book the way that I'm aware of the way people conventionally sell books. Uh -huh. You write your proposal, a chapter, you get it, and then you take your book leave to do it. Mine were always the New Yorker pieces. They were already a book length, almost. Well, yeah, that there are two. Um, my piece about Papa Neutrino got to that length because central to to that book was the idea that this is a a a, a kind of Zen wanderer, a, a, a bohemian footloose character who had never lived in a in a house for even a year at a time. He lived on barges. He lived in his van, all sorts of things. But he had built out of garbage, he found in the floating in the harbor and on the streets of New York City, a raft, which he sailed across the North Atlantic. How did you find him originally? Well, originally he was, and when I say he built a raft, he built a 17-ton raft. Yeah. It looked like a um, freighter. I mean, it was a huge thing with an engine and all sorts of things. But it was the wildest, most ramshackly, crazy-looking contraption you ever saw. And so when he left New York Harbor, my recollection was that he was on the back page of the Daily News, hmm. sort of out by the Statue of Liberty. He and his crew, there were three of them all together, four of them all together, um, were sort of waving with the Statue of Liberty in the background from the this absurdly... Beckett-looking kind of craft <laughs> headed for the unknown. And you and you thought, well, these people either sank four miles from the Statue of Liberty 
or they died and were lo- and they were lost at sea. Mm-hmm. It seemed impossible they could have made it. But a few years later, um, the New Yorker suggested to me a piece about um, they wanted people who were there was the idea for very wealthy people of beginning to live aboard sort of luxury liners that would constantly tour the world. I think there mm-hmm. actually are a few of these. So you so you never had to pay taxes because uh-huh. you weren't <laughs> resident anywhere. Uh-huh. And I said, I said, well, that sounds like a stupid idea. But I know if you want a piece about the water and people who live on the water, lo and behold, actually my wife found him finally by means of a, a Google search, but there he was. And he was building a raft to go sail by himself across the Pacific to China. Yeah. But he kept never leaving. So I got an entire book out of what was just going to be a magazine piece because I went on so many adventures with him (laughs) as he was doing all this. And then finally, he left and I had a manuscript that was a book length. Yeah. There are these great moments where you go because he's going to leave and then you just hang out more. (laughs) I went three times to Mexico. Three times to Mexico. And I had, you know, very, very um, contritely to beg the New Yorker for more money to go back to Mexico to see him take off. Did you feel influenced by him? Like when you read, when you read about it, it feels like, I mean, you're, you're connecting with the person who's the ultimate sort of wanderer and, and not constrained by whatever else we're all constrained by. I felt like he was thrilling to be with because he wasn't afraid of anything. Mm -hmm. Nothing scared him, not on an emotional level, not on a physical level. So it was thrilling to be with him. Mind you, I had a credit card. <laughs> I would not have signed on to do anything with him without that credit card <laughs> because we would get into so many messes and scrapes. And for him, it would just be, well, you know, he used to say, you know, well, I said, well, what about getting hungry? He said, ah, if you don't eat today, you'll eat tomorrow. <laughs> and I would be completely unable to get down with that. Yeah. So, you know, we would have this credit card that would get us out of swipes. He was a th- he was a thrilling person. Yeah. And you know, my wife couldn't stand him. He smelled bad. He, you know, when he when he got to be too many days without a bath, he'd buy the cheapest perfume you could buy at a drugstore <laughs> and he'd sort of put it on slap it on himself and you know, like a French woman in the 19th century or and he was a bum. Mm-hmm. He was just a footloose <laughs> bum, but I didn't see it. I just saw instead this incredibly hardy soul and um, thought, what a privilege to be have the company of this man. I, yeah. I might, you know, never have encountered him. And you, you mentioned uh, in passing, you know, like having to ask for money to go back for the, you know, go back to Mexico. And that reminds me of this thing I was going to ask you before, which is, You've been a sort of a part of this institution, The New Yorker, for all these years. And you sort of mentioned the like, you know, the heyday of this is the final word. This is the story. And then you've seen this kind of erosion. I'm curious, how does that affect you? I mean, you're one of the survivors is not the right word, but the people who've been there, as far as I can tell, the longest. I feel it's a great privilege to write for The New Yorker and for David Remnick and to have his attention. And the culture has changed. It's not as prosperous a magazine as it once was. Whatever this, whatever the terms are, I feel grateful that I haven't fallen away from it um, because I seem to feel, um, rightly or wrongly, like I have a place there and um, that I understand who the reader is, kind of. There were difficult years. But, yeah, I mean, um, you've been through four editors, I've right? been through all of the editors but Harold Ross. Yeah. Did you feel like you had to tack at different times, that you changed your style or you changed your ideas? I didn't change my style, but um, it seemed to me that to write for Tina Brown, you had to either choose criminals or celebrities. And I thought, well, I'd prefer criminals. Thank you. (laughs) That was not a great period for me. You know, David Remnick is a generational talent. There isn't another like him. And I think the editor decides what the magazine is, more or less. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets work from obviously a variety of writers he thinks about you know in my day nobody ever suggested i'm not why do i say my day back in the sean days nobody ever suggested an idea to a writer or very very rarely Uh now there's you know many assignments because david has his own idea of of things he wants to have in the magazine the kind of cultural discussion he'd like to have and have so you don't find yourself saying i don't want to do this idea i mean it sounds like you did during the tina brown era possibly felt that way i I did it was just a difficult time i i i 
I'm I'm neither proud nor not proud, I suppose, of that period. But it just you know I'm I'm pleased it didn't last longer than it did. And um, to me, it's really a great thing to be able to you know to write a piece and David lets you know what he thinks should be there or isn't there. I I regard it as a great benefit to be able to have this. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I'm really just you know, I think the older I get, the more I think that the only virtue that really is praiseworthy is humility. And because it keeps you aware of the world around you and keeps you responding to the world. Mm-hmm. I realized at some point there was no way I could ask you specific questions about all the pieces I would like to talk about, although the Papa Neutrino one definitely was one. <laughs> but I want to talk about that Gil Scott Heron piece for a second, just because that profile featured this sort of singular reporting experience, potentially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of someone who's... Reporter at a loss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and And... Can you tell me how, like, how that developed spending time with him? And then if there was a point at which you said, what should happen here? Yeah, that that's an interesting question because um, it really does involve David Remnick. Gil, Gil Scott Heron was a crack addict. He was perfectly willing to let me come spend the day with him and for this piece I was doing. Yeah. And couldn't really understand why I'd want to come back another day. But it sort of seemed to, to evolve that he... Basically thought, well, motherfucker, if you're going to come here, you know, I'm, uh, you know. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to do what I do. I mean, he started out smoking crack in the kitchen, and I would wonder why he would keep disappearing. And then he basically, after a few days, just sort of ended up smoking crack right in front of me. Yeah. And I thought, well, I can't talk about this because it seemed undignified. Yeah. I went to Gil Scott Heron's house, and he smoked crack. It seemed all, I don't want to say it seemed like gossip, but it didn't seem like the thing you would describe in a profile. It just seemed like, right. And you were profiling out of a place of this is a legendary figure yeah. in music, and, and he had this new take record. a look at what's happened right. to him and now. He had, he's having kind of a comeback. I mean, the new record right. was getting. He was having a comeback. David basically said, you know, you can't ignore this. This is what's happening in front of you. And. I think I might have written a, a pretty tepid for sort of first draft at that point. But then I also had a conversation with Sasha Ferrer Jones, the music writer. I said, you know, I don't know what to do here. I never had an experience like this where, um, I mean, I've, you know, been around the Grateful Dead and they're doing drugs, but you expect the Grateful <laughs> Dead to do drugs. It's not, nobody's going to go. It's part of their mystique. It turned out that this record was a sort of a joke uh-huh. that he'd been sort of propped up. And kind of, you know, they'd had him repeat some, recite some poems he'd done while they put a kind of techno thing behind it. But it was really sort of a, a it was, it had been really stage managed. Yeah. It wasn't a new record at all. He didn't care about it. He could barely remember the names of the people who'd done it. And Sasha said, you know, well, you know, it's the crack that has influenced this record. And you've got to write about it as a critic because it's influenced the work. Uh-huh. If the occasion for the piece is this record, and the record is what it is because of his being a crack addict, um, and so under Sasha's influence there and David's guidance, I produced what I think is, I will say, a really good piece. And I can say it because, as I say, it's it, a great deal of the credit goes to David Remnick. And if I've done something close to entirely by myself, I never know if it's good or not. <laughs> I can't. But, you know, in this case, I, you know, I read this piece not so long ago. And thought, wow, that's just better than I realized. And but what, what reaction did you did you get to? Were people? I, I I didn't really remember if people were were they outraged that I, you had included that or thought you had manipulated. I was very concerned I was going to get the outrage yeah. part of it, but I didn't. More people sort of said, "Yeah, poor old, poor Gil," because it's a sad story. It's, it's immensely talented. Yeah. you know, this was a young man who had had by the time he was twenty. Three, I almost want to say by the time he was 21, had published two novels, a book of poetry, and made three records. And and really is, along with the Lost Poets, the Last Poets, rather, sorry, the forefathers of rap. Mm-hmm. The revolution will not be televised. They're just, you know, they're, they're still give you goosebumps when you hear them. They're still so funny and so smart and so sly and so subversive and so ironic. And it's very hard to reach them as a measure. Even New York is Killing Me, that song on that sort of half-baked yeah. recent album. Yeah. You, there's something in it. 
I mean, yeah. Maybe, oh, yeah. No, he you know. I mean, the problem was, you know, like all junkies, he was overtaken by his addiction. Well, like all addicts, not I mean, whether it's drink or betting or gambling, whatever it is. Um, I had a mother who was a um, an alcoholic. And you just see after a while, if you give up the fight, the addiction takes you over. It even sort of begins to eat away at your personality so that you become less present. And and so, you know, Scott Heron had immense charm and he had this catalog of things he could do. The first thing that tipped me off was the very first time I went to see him. He was playing down in the in the village and I went to see him and I went to the eight o'clock show at it wasn't the Vanguard, but it was some one of the older clubs. And I thought, well, you know, I should stay for the second show. And I did. And he gave exactly the same show, the same jokes, the same pauses, the same, you know, apparent spontaneous remarks and I thought that's odd mm-hmm. uh, maybe I, it, I I was lucky that I didn't really know his work so much when I started because then I think it would have been overpoweringly melancholy yeah. to have seen the deterioration of this person as it was I confronted someone in you know middle age who just shockingly allowed himself to dissolve I did want to ask you just a, a question that's a, in the spirit of like uh Asking McPhee, like, how he works and that sort of thing. Yeah. You capture a density of detail. Oh, maybe too much. I, I personally love it. And I'm Thank curious you. how, I guess, how you do that is not the right question. Like, part no, of no, it is... I think it's um, one of the th- things that I think I've tried to do as a writer, if that doesn't sound pretentious, in, say, the last five, eight years is also try to get away from that. You ever had this experience when you're sort of cutting down a manuscript and you you realize that, you know, you you, you hit the end of a, something here and you, there's the, you know, text, 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 to, ah, it starts again here, mm-hmm. you know, and you just realize I don't need that paragraph or something, you know, you just, you be, there begins to be, seems to me, a natural pattern that emerges sometimes and, and um it's a result, I think, of finding the things that really matter mm-hmm. and, and are necessary. You know, William Sean told me when I started at The New Yorker, he said, write about the things you want to tell people about. And it's very good advice for a writer. Yeah. It's kind of fail-safe advice because you know those things that excite you sufficiently that you just want to find somebody to tell them to. Yeah. And hope that they'll be as delighted by them as you are. Right. The fear of having one's attention be too acute is getting into that kind of blow-by-blow description. Right, right. And that's got to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. Suspense is the thing that matters most to me in writing because you have to lead the reader forward. Uh If the reader ever gets a step ahead of you, you're lost. Because, you know, if you're going slower than the reader's attention, (laughs) and I mean a a careful reader, I don't mean somebody who's just flipping pages, a stockbroker who's, you know, has no idea how to read any more than I had, know how to listen to opera. Not that a stockbroker wouldn't know how to read necessarily. But um, th- that's one thing I think young writers don't really realize is the imperative to be always a little bit ahead of the reader. Hmm. Because that's just the, the suspense. Where are we going? Mm-hmm. The complicated thing for a writer, and I, I'm sure you feel this, is you can never experience your work as new. Yeah. So I can read one of your pieces and feel moved by something that to you is just, oh, God, I worked so hard at that. I don't know. You know, by the end, I just thought, I don't know if it works or not, but I can't do anything else. You yeah. Know? So I just see all the, the fail. But no artist, no musician, no painter, no writer, nobody is in that glorified position. And it didn't even occur to me till about a year ago that that's why when people tell me things about a piece if they happen to if i'm lucky enough that they liked something that it never quite makes sense to me yeah because you can't see it as they saw it you wrote this piece for esquire uh about your son mm. which i uh thought was very powerful yeah you talk a little bit about your own father and then you talk about your son yeah and it's felt different than yeah. a lot of other things you've written not that i've read them all right but i'm sort of interested in how that came about and why you decided well, to to do that because you've done you've done mem- memoir obviously yeah well um, i the, you know there was a period basically when and i don't mean this disrespectfully toward tina brown but i just didn't agree with the things that she so i wrote less and less for the new yorker mm-hmm. you know i'm sure you have this experience you get calls from people and they say would you consider doing a piece for us about this or that and i always has, had said no and i just started saying yes mm-hmm. 
I wrote enough for The New Yorker to keep my contract and my health insurance, but more or less I stayed away. And I found for a while this kind of sanctuary at Esquire with these people I really liked. That was not my first piece for them, but so I'd done maybe one or two. Mm-hmm. And they wanted me to write about fatherhood. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, I have a very strange child. If you think I could write one of those, you know, I'd give up the, you know, the Range Rover and the Hamptons place and the condo for that smile she gives me every morning, which was the way people were writing about their children in those days. Yeah. You know, it was just sort of this sort of romantic and to me entirely unrealistic because being a father is a very strange thing. Being a father of a, of a, of a very small child because the... A woman knows exactly what she's doing because she's partnered by blood with this being. But a father steps in kind of going, well, okay, you know, it's nine months now and and this thing is finally arriving. Um, You know, what the hell do I do? Mm -hmm. And so I was always skeptical of those people who, you know, would write these pieces about how, you know, they choked with the love they felt going, you know, because what? It's a stranger. Why would you love a stranger? A, a tiny, uncommunicative yeah. stranger. It's it, it, you have no role here, and you're you know, and you're being dishonest if you're telling me that you love this little thing. You will grow to love it, you hope, but you have no basis for loving it now, unless it's completely narcissistic. I own this. I made this. You know. So they, bless their hearts, said, "So write us a piece about your version of." fatherhood and mine is complicated by the fact that my son is autistic not severely so when you have a child who's not severely afflicted they need to get older almost to 10 before you really start to see how is this tree sort of meshing out so i wrote about sammy must have been five or so four and a half or five when he was an eccentric child but he clearly seemed not to be capable of doing certain things that other children could do easily, socially. But I was sort of trying to subvert the version of yeah. rapture over fatherhood because I think it's deeply dishonest. And, and I don't want to say I have contempt for people who feel that way, but I question it, right. <laughs> really question it. And I think you have to earn being a father. I don't know if I did or not. I'm not saying that I have, but I just mean um, it's a profound thing. It's not a, oh, now we're a family and look at my little son. Yeah. You know, one thing I was curious about was just, you know, that was, I think, 2000 or earlier that he it was came out. Born in, yeah, probably. It was probably like 2001. Yeah. And did that satisfy your impulse to sort of write about your family is one question. Well, my wife hated the piece. Oh. She, did, she didn't like being exposed and having the world know that we had a complicated child. And then I never, I never returned to it again in a way because our, then our son's setbacks and lack of capabilities became dire. It needed attention. It was no longer a subject for prose. Do you feel like those episodes in your life or those parts of your life go into what you write about? Or do you feel like you're writing and reporting, you actually try to find topics and subjects and people that are outside of your experience? No, I don't really seek anything except something that interests me. Hmm. And I think I'm a sort of, um, if you like my writing, then it's really interesting that I'm this kind of hybrid writer who was writes about the actual world descriptively, figuratively, and was trained by a novelist. <laughs> if you don't like it, you think, well, that's what's wrong with this guy's work. He's, you know, he's not really a reporter. He's not a fiction writer. What, what the hell is he? Uh-huh. No, I think that um, more and more, I think, and I wouldn't be surprised to hear this was your experience, too, as a writer, that style is character. You know, you have to stand behind your work, for better or worse. I can't, it would be pretentious to say, oh, I could have done better or something, but I was, but no, it was the best thing I could do at the time. I don't know if it's good or not good. It's for other people in a certain way to decide. I, I value it because it, it is me. It represents me and I value myself, but I can't think of a reason necessarily any other person would value it. I, I look at something like Papa Neutrino yeah. uh, or, or the Swedish guy, uh, yeah, essay Andre, like these adventurers sort of out in the world and, and even Papa Neutrino sort of like always free of, of obligations and thinking about reading this other piece where you are having, you know, the difficulty of raising a child that's difficult and wondering whether like choosing those topics is a sort of uh, being able to kind of like uh, free yourself in some way. I never thought about it, 
you know, if you're talking about the kind of work that a writer such as McPhee, who's a model for so many people, has done or something, it, it, it's all born out of his uh, out of desires and interests. And the other thing that's interesting after you've done this for a long time is I can look back at something I did a while ago, and I recognize the person who did it, mm-hmm. but I'm not that person anymore. And that's one of the things that I think is sort of hopeful and keeps you writing because you keep thinking that it will be interesting to try this again. Maybe next time I'll have a different experience or sometimes, you know, work seems to come more easily or you notice things. I mean, um, I really probably can't even stand to read my first book anymore because I was so – I'm so far removed from from who that young man was and mm-hmm. parts of it make me – that guy made so many mistakes in life, <laughs> you know, that I also sort of want to, you know, rebuke him for, you know, what the hell were you thinking, you know, and <laughs> – I think it doesn't happen to you probably until you turn 60. Um, I'm 62. And even at 50, you know, it doesn't, it, it, there's just a funny way in which the future seems endless. 60 is sort of the first time that you begin to sort of slightly look in the rearview mirror and you think, <laughs> wow, am I hauling all that stuff? You know, is, is so there, you know, you've, you've done a certain amount of things. And you've written a lot things. of it down. Or like yeah, you've there done are a, parts of it written done, down. done yeah. a certain amount of stuff. And you can see pattern, you can see yourself at various times. And, and it isn't exactly like looking at photographs of yourself from another era, but it does have a quality of gravity to it that, uh, you know, makes you feel, huh. That's actually a really good place to stop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Alec Wilkinson for trucking down to the studio. Amazing guy, amazing writer. Uh, thanks to our editor, as always, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Rachel Mabe. Uh, my co-host, Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer, and Tiny Letter. Get on that Tiny Letter, make a Tiny Letter, send it out. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.